This is an ABC podcast. Rodney Fox is a former spearfishing champion and abalone diver from South Australia. In 1963, Rodney's love of the ocean nearly ended his life when he was attacked by a great white shark. Rodney fought back, gouging the shark's eyes and wrestling the giant creature in a bear hug. Doctors told him it was the worst shark attack they had ever seen and it took 462 stitches to put his chest back together. But a few months later, Rodney was back in the water and over time he went from being a hunter of sharks to their defender. Rodney built the first shark cages that enabled divers to safely observe great white sharks in their own domain. And then Hollywood came calling. Rodney worked on the most famous shark movie of all time, Jaws, an experience that involved many strange twists, including putting lipstick on a great white. Hi, Rodney. Hi, Sarah. It's good to be here. It's great to have you here. You grew up in Adelaide. Where did you first learn to swim? Well, when I was about 12 or so, we lived at a a market garden and our neighbours had a great big concrete tank. And any time the temperature was over 90 degrees, my mum would allow me to go swimming in this concrete tank with the neighbour's boy. And we played a lot of games in that tank, like chasing each other and then underwater and swimming around. And the tank, of course, had about six inches of mud on the bottom (laughs) and it would get really black and dirty and we were like water rats and got very used to swimming around underwater. Well, actually, the story is, is my father used to take me fishing and I used to see a lot of fish that wouldn't get on his line. They were vegetarian fish almost. <laughs> and uh, and so I, I, I made myself a hand spear from crabs, crab prongs on, on, on a broomstick and... Uh, the first time I went in the water, I got myself a nice leather jacket and uh, so my love of the underwater world really started there. Did you like fish? Did you have a taste for seafood? In those days, you ate everything that was put in front of you. It, you never had this like today where they ask you whether you want, what do you want for tea, dear, for kids. <laughs> you, you just ate what was put in front of you. And... Uh, Fish was always a very hard-to-get thing and, uh, of course, I don't know anybody who doesn't really like fish if it's cooked properly and uh, my parents were really quite keen to catch them either up at the Murray or um, at the sea but um, like even fish today, they were always fairly expensive so with me spearfishing and bringing home fish, it was certainly a special event. When you invented your own kind of spear to fish with. How did you get around with it, you know, between your place and and the ocean? Well, in the real early days, I had a push bike. I took a girl to the pictures and she said, would you like to uh, go out spearfishing? We're thinking of making up a club. And I said, yes. So she said, meet us at uh, at the railway station, which is like 10 kilometres away from where I lived at uh, 7 o'clock Sunday morning and uh, we'll pick you up. And I rode my push bike in there with the spear along the bar and uh, on my back I had a, a, a jumper, a woolen jumper that I used to wear to keep warm because there were no wetsuits in those days. And sure enough, at 7 o'clock they all turned up at the uh, railway station in what was exciting in those days in 19, oh, 1950s, um, a Land Rover. And uh, we went off to Victor Harbour, which today is like a small town close by, but in those days it was like going to the moon. It was so far <laughs> away. <laughs> we uh, went to Victor Harbour and uh, I was a bit, didn't know how good these other guys were and I hadn't had had much experience and I put on my my jumper that I used to keep a bit warmer and uh, swam out 
to try and catch a fish and do as good as these other three guys and the, and the one girl there. And I come across, I swam and swam and swam, and I couldn't find any reef anywhere. It was all seaweed, seaweed, seaweed. And I came across a net and there was a salmon, a fairly large salmon, just caught by one fin and kicking around and looked like it was just going to get out. So I just speared it and I put it in my jumper and then I thought, oh, gee, I better, I'm, am I stealing it or what am I doing? And so I swam like miles up the other way after half a mile, got out of the water and walked back and all the other guys were out and they're sitting around the fire shivering and I threw the fish down. I'd speared another small one on the way and I never had to say, tell any lies or do anything because nobody asked me any questions. They just thought I got the biggest fish for the day and I thought... <laughs> I never saw the girl again, but the fellas, we all started a club and we've had a, had a fantastic time every Sunday after that for years. <laughs> well, when you don't get the help of a net, Rodney, tell me <laughs> how you go about spearfishing. What's, what's the process? So you snorkel along the surface, diving down, swimming along, looking in the weeds and the holes and things, and then you come up for another breath, take a deep breath and go down. And if you can go down for at least 20 seconds, which is pretty easy, most people can do that, you can see a lot of wonderful fish and things underwater. And as you come close to the fish with the rubber gun out in front, you get within spearing distance and and you can just spear them and um, grab hold of them, take them up to the surface. And what we used to do in those days is attach the fish onto a float that you had on some ski rope you were towing behind you so you just didn't have to hold onto the fish. But, of course, you were trailing a uh, bleeding fish behind you, which is we know is not the thing to do if you don't want to attract sharks. But we quickly ventured into our own, we made our own spear guns from wood and rubber and a trigger and a uh, stainless steel spear with a barb on the end of it. And uh, we soon uh, became, there's three or four of us became really good at catching fish and it was our lifestyle. We used to play football in the winter and go spear fishing in the summer and uh, you used to practice holding your breath all the time because the longer you could hold of the breath, the longer you'd be underwater. Did you do that in the ocean or just on land? You'd, you'd practice keeping, keeping your breath. Well, one of the worst stories I know is I used to, as a job at the age of 20, I used to drive an explosives truck for Quarry Industries here and uh, delivering a tonne of high explosives to the quarries around Adelaide and in the, city, in the country areas, I, I know it sounds terrible now, I used to hold my breath and count telegraph poles to see how many poles I could count to, to keep practising and practising. And, of course, if you hold your breath long enough, you black out. And here I was practising how long I could hold my breath with a ton of explosives on behind is not really the thing that I can recommend to do. <laughs> well, it sounds like thankfully you never blacked out and those explosives got, got to the quarry safely. You can call me lucky. <laughs> <laughs> we actually became really, really good and, and slowly got a bit better than most of the other divers around and, and we would catch lots and lots of fish and lobsters. To bring a lobster home or a couple of lobsters home, or crayfish as we called them in those days, was really quite exciting because none of our families could ever afford to buy lobster, nor did. So party time was held when we brought home quite a few lobsters. And we used to eat all of our fish. I remember on several occasions coming home Sunday night at about 10 o'clock and dumping about... Uh, 15, 20 fish on the table, kitchen table, and Dad would get out of bed and he would uh, clean and fill it and we would both pack them away and I felt quite proud to be able to take home. You know, fam we had a family of five children and uh, took several feeds of fish for them and uh, it, uh, it gave me quite a lot of satisfaction. You first became South Australian spearfishing champion in 1961. How was that win recorded in the local paper? That was quite a, a surprising thing. I, I felt really good. I, 
I had a saying there at that time because I'd competed in two or three or four competitions before and I kept saying to myself, no one can ever take this away from me. I've done it now. This is, I've, I've felt such a, because we used to work so hard at being healthy and fit and diving as well. And uh, when uh, the advertiser newspaper sent a, um, a photographer and a news a guy to do the story on the, on the competition and uh, I was there with my girlfriend in those days, bikinis were only just coming in instead of a one-piece uniform. That's what uh, the girls were wearing and she looked pretty good. And he said, do you mind if um, if Kay holds your fish and puts your mask on? I'll take a photograph of her. <laughs> and, and he takes a photograph of And then he said, oh, do you mind if she puts your lead belt on and holds your spear? So... <laughs> In the newspaper, there's a photograph of my wife in her bikini holding three or four fish with my gun and my mask and my my uh, fish and, and, and with the heading, uh, Rodney Fox in South Australian Championship. <laughs> and your family's you know, looking at that photo thinking, see, gee, Rodney looks different in that picture, doesn't he? <laughs> it didn't actually. Well, I was quite proud that actually I I had a pretty girlfriend at the time and I realised afterwards how funny it was. And, uh, but... Having won the competition and uh, and uh, having my name and girlfriend there, I I think I would have done the same. <laughs> <laughs> you were also a, an abalone diver. How plentiful were abalone in the in the seas off the South Australia coast? Well, as we were collecting lots of um, fish and lobsters, we went to many, many, many places. Our exploration of the sea was not just to go in the same place. We would go to new places and, of course, there were stories of uh, shipwrecks and gold and there was uh, new places and we knew that at the same time that there there could be the giant shark, the megalodon, could still be there. Nobody really knew and there were these big denizens of the deep, the octopus that could sink boats and there were all sorts of things that nobody knew much about. So it was a really, really exciting time. It was a bit like the Star Wars movie where you never knew who you were going to find underwater and what you were going to find. And we were down at the southeast once and we found lots and lots of black-lipped abalone and we thought, well, these are probably saleable. So three of us, we got about 50 to 80 pounds of meat each and we took it to a raptus, the fish buyer at the time in uh, in South Australia. And he said, oh, I don't know. He said, I'm actually heading off to off to Hong Kong in a, in, a, in a week or so. He said, I'll take some over and see if I can get a good sale for them. Well, he got the really good price for them and he didn't tell us how good a price, but um, <laughs> paid us like I got, I have a uh, receipt home getting seven pennies, seven pence per pound for the meat, which now I think there's uh, there are about one hundred and fifty more dollars a kilogram. So uh, there was a big jump in price slowly over the years. But the one of the interesting things was down at the southeast in those days. Sunday, there were no shops open anywhere. Even service stations were hard to find until nine or half past nine in the mornings. And and most of the service stations were owned by owners. They weren't just run by managers like they are now. And, uh, of course, we never had any money. And we'd go in there and we'd say, um, we'd like some fuel, but would you like some lobsters? To, <laughs> can we swap some? And we found out what was really interesting is that we would have given them more <laughs> for the fuel than they took because they we treated them as being like a wholesale price and, and they treated them as being the retail price. So they we offered them to take whatever they thought was fair and they would always take less than what we would have given them. But, and, of course, every service station in the country, big ones anyway, had a cafe and they always sold... Uh, mixed grill with a chop and a sausage and a piece of steak and a couple of frozen peas and stuff like that. It was everywhere. And uh, 
So we swapped it, swapped some fish and crayfish for those. It was great day, really. It was quite fun. Yeah. I'd like to pay for my my fuel with lobster. It's a great, that's a great kind of economy. Of course, yeah. you you say, Rodney, there was so uh, much about the oceans that were unknown and and dangers with the ocean. Of, of course, as there still are, particularly with spear fishing and, and rock fishing. When did you first encounter death in the water? Well, it was a strange incident. Um, just before we were married, Kay's mother would allow her to go out with me for the Easter weekend down to Victor Harbour and we were to sleep in a, a four-bunk caravan, really, and uh, we wanted to go spearfishing all the time. So. so we got there and the weather was foul. It was huge, monstrous swells and it had been horrible and... We got dressed in our wetsuits and uh, at that time we had wetsuits, walked down to the beach and uh, our friend was there with a, a catamaran and we were standing looking at the sea thinking, oh, it's nowhere, this is no way we're going to go diving, it's so dirty and there's bits of seaweed in the water. And a policeman in a motor car came down he said, are you guys divers? And we said, no, we're really... We hold our breath and dive snorkelling. And he said, do you think you can help us find a body over there? There's a fisherman has been washed off the rocks, or four or five had been washed off, but one didn't come back. And we're trying to see if we can find his body. So we said, oh, we can try. So the three of us hopped onto the, the catamaran, leaving the girls behind, and we went out to this little island and... Uh, I would commence snorkelling up and down and up and down in these big swells and we got in fairly close and saw the the four or five rods and then a huge wave came over the top and I dived down, I grabbed hold of a huge rock and let it surge over the top of me but my mate got carried right up the rocks and... Uh, deposited halfway up them and got such a shock he jumped up and ran back down again and swam back out to sea. We swam out a little deeper to try and find a bit more calmer water where we wouldn't get bashed around and as I dived down in about uh, 40 feet of water I saw a guy on the bottom looking in a cave and then I thought realised that he was wearing sand shoes and a shirt and he must have been the, the mm. fisherman we were looking for. What went through I, your mind then, Rodney? That's such a... I mean, it's what you were looking for, but what a horrible thing to see. Yeah, and it was... Uh, one of the problems was is I knew that if I went up for a breath of air, the chance that I wouldn't find him, the water was so dirty and it was down in amongst rocks and stuff. So I decided I'd try and help get him up. And as I approached the guy, I had to make a decision at which where to grab him. And the funny thing is I didn't really want to get him up by his head and I grabbed him by the ankle and I was dragging him up to the surface wondering if I'd ever get there on one breath and we're heading up to the surface and then I thought, oh, this is very disrespectful. So I turned him around up the other way and, of course, and I looked at him and I saw that even in those three or four hours he'd been in the water, the fish had started to... Uh, eat a little bit of his nose and his ear and he's bumping and crashing against me and um, I'm trying to get to the surface. I got to the surface and and uh, luckily enough they found me straight away and a couple of the policemen in a boat and took him and dragged him into their boat and uh, went home. But it's really hard. It was the first time I'd seen a dead body and uh, it was a little strange knowing what to do. You get, you're not... Uh, I don't think you can learn that at school. Did it make you think twice about the ocean? Or were you? Did you have much fear about being in the sea back then? We knew that we could... You, it's amazing when you have a, a fair bit of experience with a good pair of fins and a mask, how you can see what's down there. And it takes away your fear... And if you've been looking for things in caves and stuff and being held down for a while, a big surge goes overhead, it's amazing what the human body can actually take and how you can actually adapt to the sea and be really at home. And, and 
hold your breath and if something really goes wrong, you can stay down another 20 seconds, 30 seconds, which doesn't sound much, but it's amazing how much you can do in that time. When did you first encounter a shark under the waves? One of the first times was I speared a fish and a big shark came in and ripped it off the end of the spear very fast. It was a bronze whaler shark and they were fish eaters basically, but everything, anything with the word shark in it in those days was a little bit terrifying because we didn't know much about them. And Of course, there were sayings in those days, the best shark's a dead shark and we should kill them all, people would say, and there really are an evil monsters in the sea and, you know, and uh, so it it certainly frightened us a bit. We just uh, packed up and went a couple of miles up the coast to another spot and jumped in the water. So I don't know why it was, but we never really used to think that maybe they would get us or it was a... They were out there. Sharks were actually a bit like devil, death hell, places that you know are out there but you're not going to go there immediately. (laughs) Well, tell me about the time you did get right up close, much closer than you wanted, to a great white shark while competing in the state spearfishing championship in 1963. This is a year after I won the competitions and I was trying to regain my title and after four hours of spearfishing with about um, 40 to 50 divers in the water, um, the area had been swam over, the reefy area, the shallower parts anyway, and I came ashore and loaded, unloaded and weighed in a few fish and I realised I needed a large, they call them a tillywerty or a dusky moorwong. It would help my points tremendously. So I thought, well, I'll go out wider than most people, which means deeper than most people have been, and see if I can find one that haven't been spooked or frightened out there. So I headed well offshore and uh, about a mile, uh, three quarters of a mile offshore, and I dived down in 50 to 60 feet of water, holding my breath and swimming along the bottom and coming up the surface and taking a few breaths and then down again. And on one of those dives, I, was, I could see the fish I wanted. It had its head in a, in a clump of seaweed and I knew it couldn't see me and I just drifted in slowly with the gun out in my right hand in front of me and I was just about to pull the trigger when this huge thump and crash hit me in the chest, knocked the gun off my hand, the mask off my face. I was hurled through the water faster than I could even swim and I knew I was in really big trouble and a funny thing happened it sort of I thought of a train that's how big and heavy it was and I don't know why I thought a train I'd never actually ever been on a train could you see that it was a shark I mean as soon as you, you you're taken by surprise but then straight away are you aware of the that the animal's right there next to you well it's got me around the chest and swimming through the water and then I realized that it had to be a giant shark a friend of mine, 18 months earlier, Brian Roger, had been bitten by a shark on the leg. And we'd had lots of talks about what the most vulnerable spot is on a shark if you had to defend yourself. And the eyes, and I knew straight away I had to gouge its eyes, so I gouged around its head with my hands, from, with the chest, with my, my left arm was over the top of it, and I gouged. And I don't even know what happened, but the shark seemed to stop and let me go. And I instinctively, with my right hand, pushed out its head to push it away and my hand disappeared into its mouth over its shiny white teeth, I remember them, and and cut, really. I could feel the cuts as if you cut yourself with a razor blade. And I drew my arm out quickly before it could chop it off And then I grabbed it in a bear hug and I grabbed it back from its jaws and held on. And then I realised I was like 50 feet of underwater holding my breath and I'm going to drown, much less die of my wounds. I let go and pushed off and headed up to the surface. And just before I got to the surface, I could see 
even through without a mask on, you can see reasonably well in the water, well blurry, and I could see it was bright red and I knew it was my blood. And then in front of me, as I was looking up to the surface to see where I, how, how far I had to go, this great big shark came towards me with, with great white teeth and, of course, it threw this red haze. And I thought, I'm gone, I'm gone, I've got nothing to protect myself. And I kicked as hard as I could with my right foot at it, as hard as I could. But everything underwater is about 30% further away than you think it is. And my fin just touched it. But a miracle happened. The shark went for the float that I had a couple of fish on and swallowed the float and the fish. And then the line went tight and it dragged me through the water. The shark dived and I was pulled downwards. Now, I knew I had to get rid of my lead weights, which had the cord tied to them. And I put my left hand down because my brain knew that my right hand was... Actually, it only had one finger that had the tendons left in it. All the other four were cut. And I tried to find the quick-release catch but all I found was lead weights. Apparently the belt had slid around and I was just about to die and gasp water in. I just had enough. I couldn't hold my breath any longer. And the line snapped. (sighs) Apparently, as the shark was dragging me through the water, it snapped because when it had bitten me around the chest, it had severed the line halfway through. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Rodney, what happened after you, you managed to get free from the shark but were still underwater and, and terribly injured? I didn't know which way was up, first of all, and I remember like a leaf drifts down from a tree drifting up towards the surface and then I managed to get there and yell out, shark, shark, and another miracle, a couple of guys in a, in a very small boat had seen this bright red water and were coming over to have a look to see what was going on and I came up in the middle of it and they quickly rolled me into the boat, onto shore, into a station wagon, halfway to the city. I, two ladies picked me up in a, an ambulance and they raced me into hospital and then into on the operation to be stitched up. Oh, Rodney, what a story. Were you in incredible pain under the water, given what a huge bite that great white had given around your chest? The fear of dying, I've analysed this a fair bit since then, and the fear of dying overrides the pain of bodily pain at the time. And it was only when I was actually in the boat, in the hands of other people, and I knew I couldn't do anything for myself, I was just laying there, that the waves of pain started to come in and uh, take over. And, of course, they were pretty excruciating and... With a cut lung, was really hard to breathe, collapsed lung, and uh, if I sucked in air, it would gurgle down, you know, on my chest where the the wound was open. Um, Funny thing happened, and there's always some lovely things, about 30 years later, a guy came up to me in our shark museum, which we were running at the time, and he said, you don't know me, but... I was the guy of the orderly who opened the ambulance door <laughs> when you were brought in for your shark attack. Do you do you know what you said? And I knew I'd had a terrible time coming in in the ambulance to, just to stay alive and to breathe and to get rocked around, of course. You can imagine <sighs> that the wound being crunched together and the bones and things as the movement of the ambulance raced through the rough roads. Um I said, no, I, I didn't know I said anything. He said, he said, you said, thank Christ that's over. The ride was worse than the shark attack. <laughs> so 
<laughs> I don't know whether I would have sworn at the time, although I may have because I usually didn't do any swearing. But, <laughs> These were extreme, um, extreme circumstances, Rodney. <laughs> so it, it was funny. And there on the operating table, of course, I, they cut everything off me and started stitching me up. And, and, and what expect- did they do? How many stitches? Well, there was... In my hand there was 93. One doctor was stitching up my hand and my tendons and stuff and they thought they may have to cut off the finger, the little finger, but they decided to have a try and stitch it together. And uh, over 400 and I think the doctor said 462 stitches they put in my... They had to stitch up the lung and the pleural sac and the, the all the ribs and the muscles and then he said... Like any good uh, plumber, he said, we pulled over the skin and covered in the hole. <laughs> <laughs> what, what kind of scar did that leave you with? Well, it, it left me with a, a chest scar that I had no idea how many times I'd have to take off my shirt and show people <laughs> over the years. And the pictures they took they, after they took my wetsuit off and then later after they'd stitched me up, put all the stitches in there, those two pictures actually were published all the way around the world and and it's amazing how many people have seen them and uh, for National Geographic and Reader's Digest and magazine articles and stuff and it's, it's amazing how many free dinners I've had since then <laughs> because of those, those, those scars. Is it something you would have nightmares about, you know, particularly in the, the early weeks and months after that attack? That was a really strong and hard and difficult thing and I'm really proud that I was managed and always was able to suppress the nightmares. Many of occasions I would go back and even in sleep I would start to have a nightmare about how it happened and what happened and I was able to wake myself up even in the middle of sleep and to think of other things and to get rid of it out of my brain. Mm-hmm. And even in hospital, it was, it was when I was, was 22 at the time, I, I had to wake up and I, I didn't sleep for days and days and days, although even it's probably a lot of the drugs that I was on at the time, but I had to think of other things to get rid of it. You know, I first of all started thinking about uh, sheep jumping because that's a, a well-known thing that you think about jumping sheep and maybe get back to sleep without thinking, having a nightmare. And that didn't work very well. And then I thought about beautiful flowers and fields of flowers and pretty things like that and that didn't seem to hurt. And then I thought of steaks and lobsters and beautiful food and that seemed to help a little bit but what really took my mind off of it was girls boobs or my wife's (laughs) boobs at the time and that really that helped tremendously it really did I'm glad you found your way to that solution Rodney how long how long did it take you to get back in the water well well the first experience was really interesting I was my scars were still bad and I was still a bit weak. But the first Sunday outing that many of the clubs had was down close to Aldinga at Horseshoe Reef. And there was a lot of the club members went down there on a beautiful sunny day. And I had actually had a, a 15, 16 foot ski that we used to go spearfishing on and a, lay on and my wife actually paddled me out into the middle of about 12 or 15 divers heads that were spearfishing off this reef and I decided I'd go in the middle of them and go into the water and she I was so weak she she had to load my gun pull the rubber back on the gun and I got over into the water and immediately I saw sharks everywhere and they were actually the the sun gleaming on the rippling on the surface, sending shiny bits of shiny waves of, towards me. And I saw, said to myself, gee, Rodney, you're going to have to get rid of them or you'll never be any good. And uh, realising that they weren't, of course, sharks, but they were just flashes of light. Mm. And there, straight underneath me was a prize fish sitting in a hole. I dived down, my chest ached. I was a bit far down, but I pulled the trigger and being a good shot, I shot it 
and I managed to pull it up and climb onto the boat. And my wife paddled me back to shore where my family and a lot of friends were. And I had this prize fish, and which we had for tea with my wife, my brothers and sisters, and mum cooked it for tea, and we all sat down and had a great time. And so it helped to. Uh, it was such a reward feeling good that you're providing for your family and stuff. And uh, it took quite a few months, of course, to get back. It took a year to really get back healthy again. But uh, I, I cannot believe now at the age of 81 that I haven't really had any problems from from the shark attack in all those years. I've got this huge scar. All the ribs are a little bit mis mismatched and don't join very much. And the funny thing is, the only thing that I can really say happened is if I had had a few drinks and I was at a party, I used to get a little bit of cramp in my shark <laughs> wound and I'd rub it and it would go away. It was no pain really, anything, and I think, and it would remind me just how lucky I was. And <laughs> it was good. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were going to say when you were at a party and had a bit to drink, you'd take your shirt off and, oh, and oh, show that, that scar as too. well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that became so regular. I was walking up the street in Adelaide one day back before I went abalone diving when I was a life insurance salesman and I was walking along the street and a girl come over and said something to me. I had three buttons undone before I realised you'd actually asked me the time. <laughs> <laughs> How did you feel about sharks in the, the weeks and months after that terrible injury, Rodney? Um, the anomaly, the biggest anomaly was in hospital. I could not believe how people had showed this incredible fear and hatred towards sharks. It was the fear, really, I know now, of the unknown. They just thought that... Most people thought that if a shark saw a human in the water, it would just come in and bite it, and that they were just killers and that, that they, you know, the best shark's a dead shark and stuff like that. There was such an overreaction that I just felt it was wrong. And... I was a bit disappointed that I'd frightened so many people out of the water with the publicity and that was given with my shark attack. And uh, for years and years and years I had to fight that, that anomaly of how bad sharks... And even today, I think if, if there's somebody is hurt badly or killed by a shark, it's in the newspapers for three or four days, whereas if somebody dies in a car accident... You're lucky to even make the first page anymore. It might make the third page or so. And I started defending them and saying, well, look, they're not that bad and we've got to learn to live with them and not kill them from fear was my statement at the time. What idea did you get on a, a trip to the zoo not long after that shark attack? I was at the Adelaide Zoo with my wife and uh, we were wandering around with a little niece, a four-year-old niece, and we were out the front of the lion's cage, big, big male lion in the cage, and uh, it said, sort of said, well, he's a man-eater too, and uh, and I associated them with the big great white sharks, and, uh, and he's a man-eater too, and that's why they got him in the bars there. And, you know, and I thought, well, maybe I can reverse the role. Maybe I can build a cage put it down out with great white sharks and I'll have a look and make up my own mind as if I want to continue diving again. Did you build the cage yourself? I designed it and we made it out of weld mesh, which is a fairly strong steel that they put in concrete and uh, as a two-man cage. And I organised an expedition and we were really fortunate to find a tuna boat that had just been finished and they hadn't done a trial run and before the tuna season and I managed to get it for just the cost of the fuel and uh, they'd go for a 10-day trip and we would try and make a film because I knew Ron Taylor at that time and he and I were going to go partners in, a, in the first ever film of uh, Great White Sharks and diving. And uh, we called into a place called Memory Cove and Alf put out some whale oil, which you could get at that time because whales were being slaughtered in Albany 
and you could just buy tins of oil and dripped it into the water. And he showed me that just a little trail of oil in the water going out with the tide, it's amazing how the sharks can sense it and follow it back to its source, which is the boat. And about midnight, a big shark rattled and came and bashed around the back of the boat and we got up and so we put some fish over the side to try and hope for it would stay there till morning. And then the next morning, um, I put the cage over the side and jumped in the water. And and what happened once you were in the cage? Oh, when it was in the cage, the uh, the water was a bit bit dirty, but um, you could see fit right towards the back of the on the side of the boat I was in the cage, and uh, I was looking around and looking at the baits they had out the back where I thought the shark would come from. And then all of a sudden, right in front of me was a submarine <laughs> with eyes. And the eyes are just looking at me, these big black eyes. And it, But it didn't take any notice of me in the cage. It was looking at the, the fish and the bait we had hanging over the bat. And it went straight towards it and grabbed it and, and shook its head. It, Alf actually had a hook inside of it and managed to hook that one. But the shark didn't take any notice of me at all. He just went straight past. Did you feel protected in, in that cage he'd created? Um, I, I didn't feel too bad at all, except I did find out that I didn't have to tell myself to let go of the bars and stand back because when I first thing I remember is, is my back's on the back of the cage anyway, so I must have backed away naturally and... Uh, then I realised just how how safe I felt and all the other guys got in the cage and had a look and we'd made a film and uh, we were the first ones ever to film Great Whites Underwater. And uh, amazingly enough, that started a lifetime of organising expeditions and uh, which I never really had to advertise at all. People just kept coming to me and asking me if I would organised trips. And being an abalone diver, I was able to um, mix it in with the, my work as well. Mm. So I could just leave abalone diving and go off and organise expeditions. Because of these expeditions and the underwater filming you were involved in, you earned a, a bit of a reputation as the go-to shark man for filmmakers. How did you get involved in the most famous shark movie of, of all time, Rodney? Jaws, eh? <laughs> uh, I got a phone call from Hollywood asking me if I'd be involved and organise a trip for... It was a fairly long one. I think it was for six weeks. Uh, they were going to send out a film crew and they were making this this uh, big shark movie for, for a, a major film company and... Uh, would I organise the expedition and, and supply a couple of boats and uh, my diving expertise and put them up and show them where to live and how to live and what to do? And uh, we organised that, but they sent out a midget diver, what? a half-sized man, a little guy who was a stunt rider for kids off horses. And Carl Rizzo is his name and, and apparently his agent had told him that all you've got to do, here's a good job for you, they're going to pay you all this money, all you have to do is stand inside a very strong steel cage and the shark's going to swim around you and that's all you've got to do. But he he couldn't even dive. We didn't. Why did they send a, a, a midget? Why did they send a, a, a little person for this filming? Well, oh, that, was the, that was the whole thing. They sent a half-size cage, a half-size man, half-size scuba tanks, half-size weights, half-size fins, everything half-size to make sure that our 12 to 14-foot sharks looked like they were 25 feet long. <laughs> what, everything so the scale, they wanted to have the everything scale. smaller to make the shark look bigger. The scale was the thing. And even <laughs> the underside of my abalone boat at the time, which was a 20-foot Bertram, was to be the undersize of the 40-foot orca in the film. <laughs> so everything was half-size. And from underneath, all you'd see was the shadow. How did this poor guy who, who was told by his agent, you know, here's an easy way to make some money, how did he cope in the cage with the white sharks? Well, he he, he was a bit frightened um, 
And uh, at one stage there, when the first time we had him, we had some sharks swimming around and we decided to put the small cage, which was actually twice as heavy as my camera cage, because they'd the people at Universal Studios had only read the book Jaws and had no idea, so they made it out of solid steel instead of pipe. And it was so heavy, when we hung it over the side of my 20-foot boat on a bit of a winch, it pushed the, the boat hung it right <laughs> over sideways because it was so heavy. At one stage we had one shark swimming around and the first time ever we put him in the water, he opened the doors at the top and put him in and lowered the cage down to only about a metre under the water. And uh, Ron Taylor jumped in the cage on the other boat and was filming upwards at the at the cage in my boat. And because the, it was so heavy, I was busy pushing all the lead weights and fuel drums and stuff over the other side to try and make it level, the boat, so it would sit in the water level. And uh, we heard a yell come from the other boat, from the mothership, saying, quick, pull up, Carl, he's drowning, he's drowning. So I wound the winch up, but it was so heavy it wouldn't come out of the water. There was no test runs or anything. This is the first time. So I opened the lid and touched him on the head, expecting him to come piling out of the cage. And he didn't. So I touched him on the head again and he didn't come. <laughs> and I realised he must be in some trouble. So I put both arms down, hanging over the side of my boat, the gunnel, under his, and I lifted. But in his panic, he's holding onto the cage. So I'm lifting this huge, heavy cage oh, and him as well. So I hit him on one of the hands and he thought he must have been bitten by the shark, so he let go and leapt and he came piling up out of the cage and with this little scuba tank all with a wetsuit slippery on it and was kicking and screaming and lobbed on my chest in the bottom of my boat and we were kicking around like <laughs> wounded seals there for a long time. And I'm saying to him, what's the matter? What's the matter? And he said, my mask, my mask, it's filling up with water. And nobody had taught him that when a little bit of water runs up your, through your nose there that you can just blow it out by holding the top of your mask and snorting and it just comes out. So <laughs> so we spent the next couple of days trying to get him to uh, learn how to use a mask and clear his mask. Poor yeah. Carl. He's probably moved to the top of a high mountain or a desert or somewhere as far away from the ocean yeah. as, he, as he could possibly yeah. get after all of this. Yeah, I think he's gone back to horses. They're safer. <laughs> You had to get creative with some bullet holes on the shark. Tell me, uh, tell me about that. Well, they sent out this wonderful booklet of pictures that exactly that they wanted, like a comic book of drawings and showing exactly what they wanted. And they're quite strange because one of them said they wanted the shark to do clockwise circles around the cage and try and get the sun over the left-hand side in the corner with those little globules of sunlight glistening down. And, and anybody who's worked with sharks in the rough sea with the tides going one way and everything going the other and the shark doesn't know his left hand from his right hand, um, we, uh, we had difficulty getting things done. But one of the scenes was where they wanted three bullet holes on a shark and they wanted, they sent over this tin of red paint, a sponge with a broomstick and said instructions, screw the sponge on the end of the broomstick, plunge it into the paint and as the shark swims past, put it in this exact sequence in these three <laughs> spots on it. Well, I don't know about Americans, but Australians know that paint and shark and water don't go very well together. <laughs> anyway, we came up with the idea that we'd use Valerie Taylor's lipstick. <laughs> and somehow I got the job of drawing bullet holes on the top of the shark. And what, what, so we how? Put a, <laughs> <laughs> we put a tuna over the back of the boat and as the shark came up to take and bite on the tuna, they pulled it up really high and I was to lean over the side of the boat and... As it's snapping away, draw bullet holes onto the side with, of the boat. With Valerie Taylor's lipstick. What, just Valerie with Taylor's your hand? Lipstick. Or was it on a stick or something? Were you just reaching no, over no, to the just, shark's just, head? Just uh, I was hanging over the shark's head, but <laughs> hanging, there's no there was no sort of health and safety in those <laughs> days. I think 
one of the guys, Ron Taylor, I probably had his hand inside my pants holding onto my belt was the only safety <laughs> I had. And uh, the shark came up and I managed to get one good bullet hole and I went back and it swam around the cage, it swam around the boat and disappeared for a while. Then it came back and had another one. Uh, so <laughs> we ended up hanging over the side like this and it was really something I wouldn't do now. Glad to hear it. <laughs> and I wouldn't let any of my family do it. And uh, we managed to get three holes drawn on the shark and Ron Taylor got in the cage and and the director said, that's it, we had to have three and the shark swam around the front of the boat and we stood there waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and we never saw the shark again. <laughs> After all that, you didn't even get to film those bullet they, holes. They didn't even oh, take a, a oh, snapshot no. of us doing it and, and it was like a day's work and nothing happened, yeah. <laughs> How did you feel when you finally saw that that movie on the big screen? I was a bit, a bit. Well, I didn't tell anybody I worked on. I was a bit ashamed because ashamed. it frightened so many people out of the water, and I, that was positively not what I wanted it to do. And it portrayed the shark with so many lies that gave them powers that they never had and were bigger. It was such a thing that. I was just a bit disappointed that I'd even had anything. I didn't tell anybody for years about how how it did. And, you know, in, on our expeditions now, we run expeditions continually with people from all the way around the world, and we've made over 80 different films and documentaries, and most of them now are, of course, as to try and help sharks, as try and get them to people to understand them better and show what goes on. But so many people... And marine scientists and and, and uh, people who have done their PhDs and stuff on sharks have said it was actually the Jaws movie that stimulated them to take interest in mm. sharks. And so it didn't do all bad. It's done some quite a bit of good as well. So you're you're 81 now. Do you spend much time in the ocean? No, I, Adelaide is a fairly cold and. To enjoy yourself in the ocean here, you really have to wear a fairly big wetsuit and it's so hard to put it on and all that weight. I snorkel a little, quite a bit. At uh, We have a beach shack and I snorkel there, but if I could get up into the tropics and uh, go on the Great Barrier Reef, I would be loved to dive, do a bit, lots more diving. When I go on holidays, I still snorkel and dive and... I'm going out again in uh, January on an expedition with my son who now runs our Great White Shark Expeditions and uh, I told him I'll go in if I want to, <laughs> not if I have to. <laughs> I hope you have many, many more great dives but safe dives ahead of you. Rodney, thank you so much for telling your story on Conversations. Yes, well, that's uh, the time's passed fairly quickly and uh, I've had a fabulous life really and... Uh, Travelled all over the world giving lectures and talks and uh, just getting people to try and understand sharks a bit better. That was my conversation with Rodney Fox from last year. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.